0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So as we all know, Christmas is, well, really quite far off. But in the world of merch that has to be printed on demand, it's right around the corner. So to celebrate this and the fact that we haven't done merch in a while, I've designed some new merch. You can find it all on my website, just go to queensofenglandpodcast.com forward slash merch. I've gone a bit crazy this time and done three different designs, two of which with a podcast logo, and one with this podcast's official favourite Queen of Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn. Given that winter is coming, we have a range of hoodies, slouchy sweaters, long sleeve shirts, and mugs, along with the trusty favourite tote bags and t-shirts. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods And unlike last time, you have colour choices that aren't just white. They're going to be on sale until Tuesday the 21st of November, and then that's it. I'm sorry that isn't a lot of time, but I really want to make sure you get these all delivered by Christmas, and this was the best way. I need to make a certain number of sales to make sure these are all printed, so please don't miss out. That address again is queensofenglandpodcast.com forward slash merch. You can also find the link on the Facebook page as well. Find the design and item of clothing, slash mug, slash bag you like, and you can then select the colour. Nothing can be better, or indeed, simpler. I'd also like to thank my Patreon supporters, also now known as my Queen's councillors, who have been helping me with our secret project. If you'd like to be inducted into the council, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash Queensofenglandpodcast. There you can join my most recent counsellor, Terry. Thanks, guys, for all of your support. To my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 63, Catherine of Braganza, Cup Queen of the Merry Monarch. Charles II had spent all of his adult life striving to protect his right to the throne during the Civil Wars and then in his time in exile during the Commonwealth period. The execution of his father had left him a king without a throne, but he had never stopped believing that he could one day return to England in triumph to claim what he believed was rightfully his. We talk quite a bit in the series on Henrietta Maria, how she and others close to Charles had tried very hard to arrange an advantageous foreign marriage for him, one that would hopefully bring him an army with which he could restore the monarchy. As it happened, when the call did come from across the Channel for him to return, it was largely thanks to divisions within Republican England, rather than anything else. This meant that when he became king in 1660, he was still without a wife. Now, this wasn't especially unusual. Indeed, it was fairly standard practice. If you wanted to get the best possible marriage deal, you wanted to sell yourself at your peak price. And as a young, virile man who had just come to the throne at the behest of his people, at least those that mattered, Charles was a hot commodity. So, who are the candidates? Well, there were two major factors to consider. Religion and power. It was the preference of almost everyone in power for Charles to marry a Protestant princess. It was equally their preference for him to marry someone who could bring a good dowry and decent prestige. These things though were not necessarily compatible. England at this time was one of the few monarchies in Europe that had managed to cling on to their Protestantism in the face of the Counter-Reformation, so there were slim pickings on that front. Charles was urged by his council to consider a princess from the House of Orange, Scandinavia or Germany, but the king was entirely dismissive of all of these Protestant princesses. He stated that, quote, They are all dull and foggy. I cannot like any of them for a wife. There was also the consideration that none of these women came from one of Europe's great powers, and given the precarious state of the restored monarchy, that would be a great advantage. So, it was to be a Catholic then. But who? Well, there were two options, really. A Spanish match, and a Portuguese one. Why? Well, we'll need to delve into a bit of the background to explain. The Anglo-Portuguese alliance is sometimes described as the oldest alliance in the world that is still in force. It all started way back in the 12th century, when an English army that was sailing towards the Holy Land to take part in the Second Crusade was diverted to Lisbon, where a Muslim Moorish army was being besieged by a Portuguese force led by their first king, Alfonso. They were successful in taking the city, which later became the capital of the Kingdom of Portugal. This alliance was set in stone in 1373 and had been re-ratified a few times since then. In the years since, Portugal had gone from being just one of the many Iberian Christian kingdoms to becoming a global power with a colonial empire that stretched from Brazil in the west to parts of the West and East African coast, the Indian subcontinent and the East Indies. In 1580, thanks to a dispute over the succession, Philip II of Spain, who you will remember as being the former husband of Mary I of England, took the Portuguese throne, uniting Spain and Portugal in the Iberian Union. With England and Spain intractable enemies at this point, this meant that Portugal was now officially opposed to England, but this all changed again in 1640. Chafing under Spanish rule, Portuguese nobles gathered around John, Duke of Braganza, the richest and most powerful man in the kingdom, and urged him to lead them in rebellion against Spain. He was reluctant, knowing the power of Habsburg, Spain. But then his wife, Louisa, who was herself Spanish, and the granddaughter of the admiral that had led the Spanish Armada of 1588, picked up her daughter and told him, quote, "'Today our friends are gathered round us to celebrate the birthday of our little Catherine. Who knows?' But this new guest may have been sent to signify the will of heaven, through a special grace, to invest you with the crown of which you have been long deprived by Spain. How can you find it in your heart to refuse to confer the rank of a king's daughter upon your child? As emotional blackmail goes, that really is something. He agreed to lead the rebellion and launched what is today called the Portuguese Restoration War a conflict that would take place all over the globe thanks to each kingdom's extensive colonial holdings. He took the throne with ease, becoming King John IV of Portugal, but that was the easy bit. Holding on to it was another matter. By 1660, the 20th year of the conflict, the war in Iberia had largely reached stalemate, as Spanish military commitments elsewhere meant they did not really have the muscle to retake Portugal. However, they remained at war, and launched the occasional raid to keep the Portuguese on their toes. Okay, that was the situation. Before we move on to the marriage negotiations proper, let's back up a second and talk a little more about the girl who would become Queen of England. She was born in 1638, making her eight years younger than her future husband. She was the third of seven children, though only five would make it past childhood. At the age of eight, she was sent to a convent that was famous for educating the daughters of the highest born nobles. This was a very secluded upbringing, and many historians have stated that this didn't make for a particularly useful early education. I think that this is best expressed by Hilda Lewis, who wrote in her biography of Catherine It was an education well suited to a lady whose life must be spent within the walls of her husband's estate. To carry herself with propriety, Towards God and her fellows, to order a great house and everything that pertains thereto, but for a royal princess who is destined to be queen, who must go out into a strange free world to hold her own with the most accomplished women in the courts of Christendom, it was not enough, not nearly enough. She was sheltered from the outside world, barely coming into contact with any man but her family or priests, and so when she emerged the a teenager a few years later she had little experience about how to comport herself. There were some suspicions at court that she was destined to lead a life of seclusion and prayer. But her mother Louisa had other ideas. She was one of the few people in Europe, outside of English royalists, that truly believed that the exiled Charles would be able to regain his throne. And as early as the mid-1640s, had proposed a marriage between him and Catherine. She wanted her daughter to become a queen. At the time, this was rejected, as Charles feared the optics of marrying a Catholic princess. But things changed once he regained the throne. I laid out the diplomatic situation earlier. Like so many marriages, this was not a choice of love. This was about power politics. Working Catherine's Corner in England was the Portuguese ambassador, who happened to be her godfather, who was busy networking to build a base of support. He told the Lord Chamberlain, quote... There was in Portugal a princess, in her beauty, person and age, very fit for the king, who would have a portion suitable to her birth and quality. She was indeed a Catholic and would never depart from her religion, but she had none of that meddling activity that sometimes made persons of that faith troublesome when they came into a country where another mode of worship was practised that she had been bred under a wise mother who had carefully infused another spirit into her and kept her from affecting to interfere in state affairs with which she was totally unacquainted, so that she would be contented to enjoy her own religion without concerning herself with what others professed. Okay, be still my beating heart because that is some quality stuff there. So this is a sort of dating profile that the ambassador has set out, and it perfectly lays out how Catherine would fit in as Queen. It lays out all her qualities and assuages any fears. It starts by saying that she is beautiful and of good character, and also that she is young, which refers, of course, to her ability to bear children. You have more of a chance of producing heirs if your wife has lots of fertile years ahead of her. He then addresses the elephant in the room, her Catholicism, after making it very clear that she was not going to convert. He says that she was willing to conduct her religion in private and without evangelising, not attempting to pursue any pro-Catholic policies. One suspects that this was a bit of a dig at Henrietta Maria, basically saying that, despite the similarities, Catherine would not be as destabilising a figure as her predecessor. He then finally builds on this by saying that she would not interfere in state affairs at all. It was something that she had neither the background, education, or indeed interest. In short, she was a perfect, noble, attractive, kind, fecund, docile wife. Impressed, the Lord Chamberlain introduced the ambassador to the king, where he sweetened the deal with a very, very, very generous dowry, offering £300,000 the possession of two Portuguese colonies, Tangiers, which is the territory on the African side of the Straits of Gibraltar, and Bombay, which is modern Mumbai in India. The match was also supported by France, who feared what might happen if England and Spain got too cosy. On hearing this, the Spanish ambassador and his allies launched a smear campaign against Catherine. Remember that Charles had never met this girl, nor indeed seen a portrait, so was relying on the Portuguese ambassador's word that she was all he described. The Spanish faction described her in a decidedly unflattering light, calling her ugly, deformed, famously barren, and in poor health. They suggested instead some Italian princesses, as they were in the Spanish sphere. Charles dispatched an ambassador to Italy to check them out. When he returned, he described the first one as being monstrously fat, and the other as, quote, so ugly that he dared not go forward with any negotiation. Seeing the leads were not in his favour, the Spanish ambassador stated that if Charles married Catherine that it would mean war with Spain. But Charles called his bluff. Two weeks after his coronation in 1661, Charles announced to Parliament his decision to marry Catherine and dispatched the ambassador to Portugal, the Earl of Sandwich, to pick her up aboard the HMS Charles. When he arrived in Lisbon, he was greeted by cheering crowds. Everyone was excited at the prospect of this marriage. There were fireworks, pageants, bullfights, everything to impress the English visitors. He was taken to the palace where he met Catherine's brother, Alfonso, who had become king a few years earlier upon the death of their father. He then met Catherine and presented her with the king's best wishes and some gifts, dresses tailored to the English style. But the Portuguese had some bad news for the English. Portugal was a bit strapped for cash thanks to the war with Spain. They had agreed to make the payment in full but now they were going to give them only half of it now, and the rest would come later in the year. Things got worse when the ambassador went down to the docks and found not gold and silver being loaded onto the Royal Charles, but bags of sugar and spice. The Queen Regent Louisa said that she would send an agent along to London who would sell these goods on and pass on the proceeds, but this was hardly what had been agreed. But Sandwich was in a bind. He had already taken Tangiers, and the optics would be terrible if he returned home without Charles's queen. So, he had no choice but to take Louisa at her word. Another departure from tradition was that there was not the normal proxy wedding. Usually what would happen, as we have seen so many times on this show, is that the princess would be married in two stages. First in her own country, with her family all around her, with some English noble standing in for the groom, and then again in England. But here, things were a bit tricky. And again, it comes down to the diplomatic situation. The Pope did not recognise the Portuguese monarchy as being legitimate. To him, she was just the sister of the Duke of Braganza. This would be reflected in the necessary papal dispensation that would be required for a Catholic to marry a Protestant. Of course, the Protestant English didn't care. They recognised the Portuguese monarchy, and that is all that mattered. Catherine's big day came on the 23rd of April, 1662. St. George's Day, the patron saint of both England and Portugal, when she said goodbye to her mother and brothers and boarded the Royal Charles. A later poem described her arrival at her quarters aboard ship as follows. Her royal cabin and her stateroom too, adorned with gold and lined with velvet through. The cushions, stools and chairs and clothes of state, all of the same materials and rate. The bed made for her majesty's repose, White as the lily, red as Sharon's rose. Egypt nor Isles of Chittim have not seen such rich embroideries, nor such a queen. Windows with taffeties and a mask hung, while costly carpets on the floor are flung. Regions of perfume, clouds of incense hurled in every room of this our little world. Here she begins her progress, comes aboard, turns voyager to greet her dearest lord. The Royal Charles by sea and land shall take, both for her zenith and the zodiac. The journey to England was rough, dangerous, and horribly uncomfortable for Catherine, who had likely never been on such a long journey before. Finally, after nearly three weeks at sea, Catherine landed in Portsmouth. She was wearing one of the English dresses that Charles had gifted to her, and was greeted by the governor of the city, as well as some other local dignitaries. Upon arrival, Sandwich wrote a letter to the king's chief minister, Edward Hyde, the Earl of Clarendon. "'The queen received my lady Suffolk and the other ladies very kindly, "'and appointed them this morning to come and put her in that habit "'that they thought would be most pleasing to the king. "'And I doubt not, but when they shall have done their part, "'she will appear with much more advantage, "'and very well to the king's contentment. "'She is a prince of extraordinary goodness of disposition,' very discreet and pious, and their most hopes that there ever was of her making the king and us all happy. But all of this begs one question. Why was he having to write to Clarendon about this? Where was Charles? Well, as would become a pattern of his married life, he was in bed with someone else. Cue shock and gasps. Charles II is probably England's most famous philandering king. Over the course of his reign, he would take many mistresses and conduct numerous affairs, many of them very much out in the open. But the most famous of these was with Barbara Palmer. She was two years younger than Catherine and was born into the Villiers family. Her uncle was the Duke of Buckingham that had been such an influential figure during Charles I's personal rule. Her family had stayed faithful to the royalist cause throughout the Civil Wars and the Commonwealth period, probably because they were Catholics. Her father had died at Newbury, but the family stayed in England under Cromwell. It is believed that Barbara and Charles had become close while he was in exile at Breda, as she would pass messages between him and his supporters in England. She married another royalist, Roger Palmer, in 1659, but she was carrying on an affair with another noble before and after the wedding. It was very much a sham from the start. She has been described as the most beautiful woman in England at the time, Tall, pale, blue-eyed and voluptuous. Her affair with Charles was an open secret right from the off. Indeed, he made her husband Earl of Castamaine in order to give her a high noble status. She had moved into the royal palace at Whitehall as soon as Charles had arrived in England to take his throne. And by the time of Catherine's arrival, she was already pregnant with her second child, both of whom she claimed were Charles's. So yeah, not a great look. Once he heard that Catherine had arrived, Charles had dinner with his mistress and then set off for Portsmouth the next day. When he arrived, he found Catherine in bed, still recovering from the rough journey. They spoke together in Spanish, as it was their common language, and it appears that he was happy with his new wife, though he had a funny way of expressing it. He wrote to Clarendon, quote, "'Her face is not so exact as to be called a beauty,' "'though her eyes are excellent good "'and nothing in her face that in the least can disgust one. "'On the contrary, she hath much agreeableness in her looks as I ever saw, "'and if I have any skill in physiognomy, which I think I have, "'she must be as good a woman as ever was born. "'Her conversation, as much as I can perceive, is very good, "'for she has wit enough and a most agreeable voice. "'You will wonder to see how well we are acquainted already. "'In a word, I think myself very happy.' for I am confident our two humours will agree very well. Here's a tip from the top, guys. Don't describe your other half's face as having, quote, nothing that can disgust one. It won't go well for you. He wasn't alone, though, in having good things to say about Catherine. Samuel Pepys, the famous diarist, upon meeting Catherine a little while later, will describe her as, quote, Though she be not very charming, yet she hath a good, modest and innocent look, which is pleasing. Lord Chesterfield, who coincidentally was also sleeping with Barbara Palmer, described Catherine as being, quote, "...exactly shaped and has lovely hands, excellent eyes, a good countenance, a pleasing voice, fine hair, and, in a word, is what an understanding man would wish for in a wife." Famously, that is more than one word. But not everyone was so kind when describing the 23-year-old Queen. She wasn't really considered a true beauty, as we have seen, especially when compared to Barbara Palmer. She was rather short and thin, and many commented on her protruding teeth, which one source described as, quote, wronging her face. Charles and Catherine were officially married a couple of days after their first meeting, but again their different religions made things complicated. First, there was a small private Catholic service in her own bedchamber, with only a few members of her household present, and then a great public Anglican service at the king's house. After all of this, they set off for Hampton Court Palace. Crowds had thronged to see their new queen, and she was an immediate hit. But straight from the off, there was trouble in paradise. Only a few weeks after she had arrived at the palace, Barbara Palmer gave birth to a son, who she named Charles after his father. To have insult to injury when it came to make appointments to Catherine's bedchamber, Charles presented to her a list of names. And, you guessed it, top of the list was Barbara Palmer, whom he wanted to give one of the leading roles as Lady of the Bedchamber. Now, Catherine was a woman of the world. She had likely been forewarned about Charles and Barbara. But this was a step too far. When Charles had first introduced his mistress to her, she was so overcome by his tactless brazenness that she burst into tears, developed a violent nosebleed, and then proceeded to faint in shock. Charles was unsympathetic, and told her that she had been unforgivably rude, and that she had no choice but accept his decision. But Catherine was determined to put up a fight, and refused to accept Barbara or to allow her in her presence. She argued passionately with the exasperated king. Catherine was not without support in her stand. Charles' sister Minette in France wrote to her brother, saying that, quote, it is said here that Catherine is grieved beyond measure, and, to speak frankly, I think it is with reason. His chief minister, Clarendon, also tried to persuade Charles to back down, but the king was resolute. In letter to Clarendon, he warned him not to get in his way on this. He stated that, quote, "'Whosoever I find use any endeavours to hinder this resolution of mine, "'I will be his enemy to the last moment of his life.' I solemnly swear to almighty God, therefore, if you desire to have the continuance of my friendship, meddle no more with this business, except it be to bear down all false and scandalous reports, and to facilitate what I am sure my honour is so much concerned in. Clarendon had no choice but to try and persuade the Queen to accept her husband's mistress into her household. He tried being firm with her, but that didn't work. He tried using reason saying that her brothers have mistresses, why should she be surprised that the king had one as well? Clarendon managed to obtain from her an apology for her rudeness towards Charles, but she still angrily refused to accept Barbara Palmer as her lady of the bedchamber, saying that she would rather return to Portugal than accept her. After this, Clarendon heroically gave up, and so Charles was forced to do his own dirty work. He and his wife quarrelled for weeks, neither of them giving an inch. Charles took his anger out on Catherine's fellow Portuguese, threatening to expel the lot of them. Eventually, a mediator was found, and it was none other than our old friend Henrietta Maria. When she met Catherine for the first time, she stated that she had come, quote, for the pleasure of seeing her, to love her as a daughter, and serve her as a queen. With his mother around, Charles was far more courteous to his wife, and kept Barbara at arm's length. But equally, Henrietta managed to persuade her daughter-in-law that, while she may not like it, she had no choice but to acquiesce. For the moment, Catherine would not allow Barbara the formal position, but she had to accept that she was going to be sticking around. This was an uneasy compromise, but would have to do for now, as the time had come for Catherine's next big day, her ceremonial entry into London. Now again, Catherine's Catholicism made things tricky she would not receive a coronation for the same reason as Henrietta Maria, that it was a Protestant service. But that didn't mean that she wouldn't be greeted in style. An aqua triumphalis was instead thrown for her, which saw her enter the city on a royal barge, accompanied by her husband and the rest of the royal family. It was described thusly by the well-travelled diarist John Evelyn. I was spectator of that most magnificent triumph that ever floated on the Thames considering the innumerable boats and vessels dressed and adorned with all imaginable pomp. But above all, the thrones, arches, pageants, and other representations, stately barges of the royal mayor and companies, with various inventions, music, and pearls of ordnance, both from the vessels and from the shore, going to meet and conduct the new queen from Hampton Court to Whitehall at the first time of her coming to town." In my opinion, it far exceeded all the Venetian, Bucintoras, etc., on the ascension when they go to espouse on the Adriatic. His Majesty and the Queen came in an antique-shaped open vessel covered with a state or canopy of cloth of gold made in the form of a cupola supported with high Corinthian pillars wreathed with flowers, festoons and garlands. Given that Evelyn had been to Venice and seen the magnificent pageant that he refers to there, This was high praise. So, despite the rocky start to their marriage, Charles was determined that Catherine got as magnificent a welcome as he could muster. On her arrival at Whitehall, she was greeted by Henrietta Maria and a great crash of ceremonial cannon fire, before being led into a great celebratory feast. A bishop may not have put a crown on her head that day, but there was no doubting that she was very much now the Queen of England. But she still didn't have her husband's heart. She did her best on public occasions to be merry and play the dutiful wife, but behind closed doors and to the inner court, she appeared miserable and sullen. Barbara Palmer was far more popular and convivial than she, meaning that all the ladies of the court flocked to her side, leaving Catherine as a very isolated figure with only a couple of Portuguese ladies for company. It didn't help that she didn't speak very good English and struggled with the language for much of her queenship. Another sore point in the marriage was the matter of the dowry. Now, we've seen a lot of dowries in our time on this podcast, and I can think of very few that were ever paid on time. There seems to be a common watchword when it comes to dowries. You must always overpromise and under-deliver. The £300,000 that had been promised never materialised. Charles had seen almost nothing of the proceeds of the sugar and spices that had sailed with Catherine, and it looked like he was being royally stiffed. Compounding this was the enormous culture clash between his wife's ladies and those of the court. Much has been made of the gaiety, frivolity and ostentatious excess of Charles II's court. From our perspective, it looks all rather, well, excessive and frivolous, but for those at the time, this was a rebellion against the straight-laced Puritans who had ruled England during the Commonwealth era, and a celebration of wealth and privilege. Derek Wilson, in his book All the King's Women, Sums it up rather well. Quote, ribbons, bows, fine lace, ballooning, silks, and above all, colour were now de rigueur. And that was just for the men. Court ladies spent fortunes on floral brocades, elaborate coiffures, and bejewelled immodestly low cut dresses. What a visual contrast was struck by his wife's attendants. Her priests and monks shambled around Hampton Court in sombre browns and blacks, averting their eyes from the wanton, shameless braggadocio of the king's companions. Her ladies stubbornly espoused the quiet dignity of their native costume. These outward shows symbolised something deeper. Charles felt that his way of life was being questioned, and that he would not stand for it. His insistence upon placing Lady Castamain close to the Queen may well have been in order to introduce a little levity into Her Majesty's chambers. Barbara was not promoted primarily because she was a voluptuous termagant whom the King could not refuse. She was a Trojan horse, insinuated into the Lady's side of the court to introduce an element of debonair gaiety. He really does have a way with words, doesn't he? Angry at what Wilson calls, quote, the interfering, rosary-touting, narrow-minded fanatics that surrounded Catherine, Charles followed through on sending all of her attendants back to Portugal. Now, in fairness, it was not unusual for a queen's entourage to be significantly reduced after she had arrived in her new kingdom and had their ceremonial entrance and or coronation. But in this case, given her isolation in an extremely foreign and unfriendly court... This must have been a crushing blow. Seeing that obstinance was getting her nowhere, she attempted an about-face. If she had to accept Barbara Palmer as her lady of the bedchamber, why not try to like the woman and get to know her husband that way? But Charles hated that too, and those at court who had had sympathy for her suddenly saw her as two-faced. According to Clarendon, quote, this total abandoning of her own greatness, this lowly demeanour to a person she had justly condemned, made all men conclude that it was a hard matter to know her, and consequently to serve her. And the king himself was so far from being reconciled by it, that the esteem which he could not hitherto in his heart but retain for her, grew now much less. He concluded that all her former anguish expressed in those lively passions, which seemed not capable of dissimulation, was all fiction and purely acted to life by a nature crafty, perverse, and inconstant. She really couldn't win, could she? As might be expected, Catherine had little to no political influence at court in these early years. You may remember that this had been one of the selling points of her as a queen back when the negotiations were going on but she didn't have many of those traditionally female roles that a queen was expected to inhabit either. Barbara received all the attention of the king at court, even on great state occasions. He would openly flirt, dance and kiss her, and largely ignored his wife. When they got invited to dine at the residences or apartments of other nobles, he would slip away at night to sleep with Barbara, leaving Catherine embarrassed and alone. On the flip side, Barbara was seen to have significant influence with the king. Given that he frequented her chambers far more regularly than he did the queen's, she could use valuable pillow talk time to urge this appointment or that, support or oppose various policies, and generally make herself a political player. People recognised this, and would approach her seeking her intercession with the king. This was supposed to be a queenly role, but Barbara had usurped it. Charles almost never dined with Catherine privately and rarely shared her bed, despite his duty to produce an heir. And this was a big problem. I've talked frequently about how important it was for a queen's security on the throne for her to produce a child, preferably a son, as quickly as possible. Any child of hers would succeed to the throne. This was her great trump card over Charles's mistresses. Or was it? Barbara Palmer was not Charles' first or indeed only mistress. That during his exile, he had followed a child with Lady Anne Scott. He arrived in England in 1663, at the age of 13, and was given the title of Duke of Monmouth. And there were strong rumours about that, as his eldest male illegitimate child, he would become king should Catherine fail to provide him with a child. This made Catherine potentially replaceable. They must have been sleeping together at least occasionally, though, because... After a year of marriage, Catherine was becoming concerned about the fact that she wasn't pregnant. She resolved to go take the waters at Tunbridge Wells in Kent, as the water there was thought to aid fertility. As the water there was thought to aid fertility. But she was told there was no money. Due to the fact that her dowry had not been paid properly, Charles was withholding her allowance, spending it instead on his mistress. Eventually, though, money was found and so she spent a month there, diligently taking the water every day. When that, shockingly, didn't work, she persuaded Charles to come with her to bath, and perhaps surprisingly he agreed, bringing with him the whole court. It seems that around this time, and especially on this trip, away from the soft, warm embrace of his mistress, husband and wife finally managed to spend some quality time together. Charles was backing a pro-Portuguese foreign policy at the time, and everyone was beginning to notice a new warmth between them. Samuel Pepys noted that, quote, The Queen hath much changed her humour, and is become very pleasant and sociable as any. She began to indulge her great love of dancing, and for a wonderful summer, it looked like maybe they could become a real partnership. But then they returned back to London, and Charles went straight back to Barbara Palmer. To add insult to injury, around the time of their return in September 1663... Barbara gave birth to another son, Henry, who, like his brother, was acknowledged by the king as being his. It's not known if the stress and unhappiness finally got to her, or if the two are unrelated, but in the following month Catherine became seriously ill. She had a high fever and also seems to have contracted the measles, a deadly disease at the time. It got so bad that she was read the last rites. Charles at this time played perfectly the role of doting and loving husband. He sat by her bedside every night, sometimes reportedly with tears streaming down his face, begging her not to die. She became completely delirious, panicking that she had given birth to an ugly son. And Charles had to tell her that their imaginary son was actually very handsome. This, of course, did not stop Charles, after he left his wife's bedside, from spending the night in romantic trysts with Barbara Palmer, or indeed his chasing a new bay in Francis Stewart. By the end of the month, the worst was over for Catherine, and she began to recover. She managed to attend chapel in early November, and Charles wrote to his sister Minette that she had made a full recovery. It had been a serious scare for Catherine, but if she had hoped that her husband's attentiveness and doting care of her during her illness was to be maintained after her recovery, well, again, she was sorely mistaken. Indeed, he was now completely infatuated with Frances Stewart, the fury of Barbara Palmer, but there were signs of change. Catherine started to take more of an interest in Charles's hobbies, most notably the Navy. Relations with the Dutch were about to break into open war, and Charles was preparing to travel to see the fleet out to sea. Catherine insisted on coming too, and they inspected the Navy together. They also shared a love of science and astronomy, and would go stargazing together. So finally now, after a couple of years of marriage, Catherine seems to have firmly accepted her place in the king's affections. She would never be happy at Charles's open floundering, but there was nothing to do about it. Her affection for her husband, despite everything, cannot be doubted, but greater troubles were on the horizon for her, as the specters of plague, fire, war and divorce were on the horizon. <laughs>